So, it is fun to be here. I'm so glad Father Aaron invited me. And I'm going to tell you this morning, um, telling you what this world, I want to start by telling you what this world needs more of. We need a little more of one thing. This one thing would soften our political climate. This would improve your health and your mental outlook on life. This would raise your happiness level. I'm making all of these promises to you today. What we need more of is we need more moo-moos. <laughs> now, my daughter pointed out to me that a moo-moo is a woman's dress, but that's not what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I'm talking about something that happens in the western highlands of Papua New Guinea, where my son Matt and his family serve as missionaries. A moo-moo, M-U-M-U, is a huge communal feast, a festival, a celebration in which the entire village shows up. And it matters that every single person in the village is there. It will last a day or two days or three days. They will kill a fatted pig and then they make a huge hole in the ground and they make like what my son called a earthen crock pot or an earthen sauna. And so they will put rocks at the bottom of that, these special kind of rocks that are heated that becomes like the furnace for the mumu oven. And then in that mumu, they will layer banana leaves and then the pig and then vegetables wrapped in banana leaves, layer upon layer, and then they cover it, and then they let it cook all day long. And while it's cooking, the people celebrate. They hang out, they play games, they are together, all of them. And again, it matters that everybody is there. And the interesting thing is, is that everybody that shows up gets exactly the same portion of food. So you could weigh 300 pounds, or you could be a six-year-old child, and you get exactly the same portion of food. Something really significant about that. So I tell you, the world needs more moo-moos. We need to learn from these people that so many people would call primitive, so many people would call backwards, so many people would call uncivilized, and yet they are ahead of us in this. We have lost something precious something really valuable in our inability to celebrate in communal and embodied ways. And we think we have lots of good reasons. I don't have time for that. Work is more important. I have too much to do. I have enemies to fight. I have problems to solve. We have a world to change. We need to make a difference. So what do we do? We isolate. We go our separate ways, and we're increasingly seeing in the Western world something that you rarely find in places like the Western Highland of Papua New Guinea. Depression, mental disorders that are often exacerbated by isolation, by loneliness. I'm not to say that's the only reason why people get depressed, because people get depressed for a lot of complex reasons. But that's one factor. Or someone would say, wait a minute, we have our moo-moo, it's called the Super Bowl, that's our moo-moo, right? 
Four, 98.2 million people watched it last year. What a colossal moo-moo. $14.86 billion we spent on it. That's not the game itself. That's just people watching the game. But let me ask you, does anybody care if you don't show up for the Super Bowl? Do you think Patrick Mahomes is going, oh, I really wanted to see you there? Patrick Mahomes is the starting quarterback for one of the teams, if you're not really into football, by the way. <clears throat> he doesn't care that you're there. Nobody cares that you're there. It's not a participant event. You're a spectator. And you're a disembodied spectator from a distance. That doesn't count as a moo-moo. That's a really lousy moo-moo. So I say again, we need more moo-moos. You heard the gospel reading this morning? There's a lot going on in this story about Jesus at this wedding in a small town in Cana. There's a lot going on. But one thing that's going on is Jesus is the center of and the host of a mumu, a ancient Israeli Jewish mumu. And he is calling people to a life of celebration. He is the humble host that calls us into celebration. And we follow him, we believe into him, and we become people of celebration. There's a man named Dallas Willard who was a Christian philosopher who uh, died a few years ago, and he had this great quote about how important this concept of celebration is to our life, this concept of the feast, of festival. He said this, a healthy faith before God cannot be built and maintained without heartfelt celebration of God's goodness to us in the midst of suffering and terror. So it's not an escape from suffering. But Willard is saying that maybe if you don't have a healthy faith right now, one reason could be, might not be the only one, but one reason could be is because of a lack of heartfelt celebration in our lives. Flip side is, if we desire, if we want to grow in our relationship with God, if we want to build it and maintain it, one of the disciplines is we will need to build in is this heartfelt celebration of God's goodness, which is what we're doing this morning. This is what we're doing. Now, in this story, in John chapter 2, and basically in any good celebration, you need at least three things. You need more than that, but let me just focus on three things. So if you're going to have a really good celebration, you need a host or a hostess. You need a purpose. Why are you doing this? What's the purpose of this? And you need wine <laughs> or its equivalent. Wine is the stuff the host or hostess provides. It's the food. It's the tangible sign of joy. You need all three of those. And all three of those are in this passage. So the host, who's the host in this passage? Well, really, in this passage, as we'll see, everybody thinks the host is this guy who's sort of the master of ceremonies, who's kind of in charge, but he really has no clue what's going on. The guy's oblivious. The real host in this story is Jesus. And that's not surprising because it's in the Bible. So you think, well, of course it's going to be about Jesus. But what's surprising is that Jesus is such a humble host. Have you ever thought about God as humble? Jesus is God in human flesh. It says in John chapter 1, when you've seen, 
when you've seen Jesus, you've seen God the Father. There is no God behind Jesus. There is no other God behind Jesus. You see Jesus, you see God in human flesh. And what does he do? He's a humble host. Now, that's surprising because at the same time, he's also the Lord of this festival. It's really clear that Jesus is in charge of this. And we don't come to his feast on our terms. We come on his terms. So there's this really funny, kind of awkward-sounding exchange between Jesus and his earthly mo his mom, Mary, which is actually kind of funny, I think. So in verse 3 in the passage, Mary just mentions to Jesus very abruptly and simply, hey, son, they have no wine. They have no wine, Jesus, as if to say, do something about it. I know who you are. I know you're the Savior of the world. Could you maybe fix this problem? So it's great. I love that. And then Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, which sounds like, mom, just butt out. I got this. Just leave me alone. And it sounds like really disrespectful, but it's not. So the only other time, there is another time when Jesus says exactly the same phrase. He starts talking with, says, starts talking to Mary, and he calls her woman. He doesn't call her mom. And so you might think, well, he's being really rude. He's being really disrespectful. He's dishonoring his mother. Well, in John chapter 19, Jesus is on the cross, and he's talking to various people, telling them what he would like them to do. And he tells, he turns to his mother and he says, woman, behold your son. He's saying, this, my friend John, is going to be your spiritual son now. And he's going to take care of you. It's incredibly tender. It's not a rude phrase. It's tender. So this could actually be a tender phrase, woman. But at the same time, Jesus is being really clear about what we would call boundaries or self-deferentiation, if you're into that psychological term, which is a good term. Jesus is saying, look, mom, I'll decide when I'm going to do a miracle, not you, just so we're clear. He has good boundaries with his mother. So if you need good boundaries with your mother, here's a good model in Jesus. And he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, the phrase, my hour, is a phrase for, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die on the cross. He says, I, Mom, I'm not ready for that yet. This, this is going to unfold slowly. The story of my life is going to unfold slowly. But Mary turns to the servants. He's like, done talking to Jesus. Turns to the servants and goes, these are the people that, you know, you're at a banquet. They run around. They got the trays, all that kind of stuff. He turns to them and says, do whatever he tells you, okay? I love that. And that actually becomes a really important phrase because just do what Jesus tells you. That Mary is like so wise in what the Christian faith is all about. Do what Jesus tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And that's what the servants do. So we read later in the passage, they, Jesus says, fill those, see those jars over there? Fill them to the brim. And then the text says, and they filled them to the brim. And then he says, draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast, or the guy that thinks he's the master of the feast. And it says, so, it says, so they took it. 
Boom. Jesus says it, they do it. They obey him. He's the Lord. But he's also the humble Lord. And that's what's really surprising in this. He's the humble host. So there are six water jars, and they each hold between 20 and 30 gallons. He fills them all. He turns them all into wine. So that's 100, between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. That's a miracle. That's impressive. And he also saves the day for a bride and groom. So in this day and age, when you run out of wine, this is a serious social faux pas. They even had lawsuits. People, they have records of people actually suing a bride and groom because I turned up for your wedding and we ran out of wine. So really, that's a historical record. So this is like a big deal. It's like an, especially in an honor-shame culture, this could be a huge deal. So he saves the day for him. And who knows about it? Nobody. Except for Mary, the disciples, and the servants. The people running around with the, the trays. They're the only people that know. The master of ceremonies, the guy in verse 8 who thinks he's in charge, he thinks the groom's responsible. And he tells the groom, hey, man, you're awesome. And the groom kind of like, oh, what's happening? But I guess, I don't know, I don't know. But he doesn't, he doesn't deny it. Now, you'd think if Jesus, he could have done this. Just imagine this scenario playing out. Jesus interrupts dinner. He says, clinks a glass. I don't want you to kiss, okay? I just have a special announcement. My mom has notified me that we have a bit of a crisis here. I have things under control. In just a minute, you are going to have the best wine you've ever had in your life. You might want to pull out your iPhones. Jesus closes his eyes. He raises his hands. He says a long prayer. And then he says, be wine. <laughs> and then he says, now, just a minute after I post this on Instagram, you can line up and get your wine. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do any of that. It's all so quiet. It's all so hidden. Why? Well, first, he doesn't want to embarrass the bride and groom. He actually honors them. He honors this couple. We don't even know their name. In this small town, this insignificant flyover country town. And he honors them at their wedding day. I just think that's so beautiful. And also, why does he do it? Because he's humble. Because he's the humble host. In verse 11, it says he manifested his glory. But to whom? He has glory and power. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says that Jesus is, Jesus is in him was life, and the life was the light of the world. All things were made through him. That's the authority he has. All things were made through him. But he's also humble. I have this friend, a missionary friend, who spent 20 years in Afghanistan and Pakistan working in one of the really hardest places in the world to minister. He saw all kinds of horrible things, all kinds. He had friends die, had friends get murdered, friends lose their lives, to lay down their lives to share the gospel. And Pat will talk with tears in his eyes. This is one of the big things of his life, one of his central themes of his life. He will talk with tears in his eyes. He will say, Matt, our God is so humble. Our God is glorious. But our God is so humble. Jesus is the humble host. You also need a purpose for a good festival, for a muumuu, or our equivalent of what's going to be a muumuu. We know the purpose of the Super Bowl. 
It's the championship of American football. What's the purpose for gathering around Jesus? We see it in verse 1. Notice this little phrase. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, not, not every New Testament scholar will agree with me, but I think I'm right. That's why I'm going to say this. So, um, <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't bother you. So there's really, as you follow the flow of the text, this should really be the fifth day because he's talked about four days, the next day, the next day, the next day, the next day in chapter one. So this should be the fifth day. So why does he call it the third day? Well, here's why he calls it the third day. The third day was shorthand in the church and in the New Testament for the resurrection of Jesus. So you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, written by a man named the Apostle Paul, and he's talking about the core of our faith. And he says, he talks about how Jesus, Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and then on the third day, he was raised from the dead. The third day in the church became another way to say the resurrection of Jesus. That is what gathers us every Sunday. One scholar has said that this, this, this text, this John 2 story, has a resurrection aura about it. I love that. It's got a resurrection scent about it, a resurrection aroma. You know, you light a candle in a room in your house. Like, let's say I have a candle that's apple cranberry scent. I love it. I can smell it right now. Apple cranberry, and you light that, and the room has an aura of apple cranberry, an aroma of apple cranberry. And this story has an, a scent, aroma of the resurrection of Jesus. I love that. As Anglicans and, and other great, what we sometimes call great tradition Christians or Catholics or uh, Orthodox believers, we believe that every Sunday, every worship service, is a mini Easter service, M-I-N-I, -I. just a little Easter service. Even during Lent, when we're talking about our sin and repentance, it's a mini Easter service, a mini resurrection. And you'll hear that in the liturgy, the hope of the resurrection. This is Jesus' first sign, we're told at the end of this story. Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Now, if you're like a, let's say you're a tech company or you're a startup company and you're going to roll out, you're going to roll out your first product and make your first statement about your product. You want it to be really clear about what it is and who you are as a company. You want to be clear. So Jesus is, this is his first sign. It's not just a miracle, but it's more than a miracle. It's what it points to. And what is he pointing to? He's pointing to the power of the resurrection, among other things. Once a week, we gather together and we celebrate the hope of the resurrection. The fact that at the cross, the worst thing ever happened to a human being who was God in human flesh. It looked so bad. It looked like a dead end. It looked like no hope. It looked like total despair. It looked like injustice would have the last word. And then... But on the third day, he rose again. And the resurrection reversed all of that. The worst news became the best news. Out of that darkness came the light of Christ. And you and I get to share in that. 
remember about 10 years ago, um, my life, as I knew it, completely unraveled. Darkest days of my life. And I remember Christmas Eve. I was in Trader Joe's on Christmas Eve. And I was picking up wine. And I had two bottles of wine in my hand. And it was the first time in 22 years I was not a pastor anymore. So I didn't have to go to church. And I'm thinking, why am I going to go to church? Why don't I just go drink these bottles of wine and just go home and drink the wine? I was ready to quit church, ready to give up on God entirely. And as you might have guessed, something happened, because here I am. <laughs> and I'm going, what happened? Um, no, here's what happened. Jesus and his church ministered the hope of the resurrection into my life week after week. So I made a decision. I made a decision after that Trader Joe's somewhere in January that I was going to show up every Sunday, whether I felt like it or not, whether I felt like I got out of it, anything out of it or not, whether I felt like I believed it or not, I was going to show up. So I kept showing up, kept receiving, kept drawing in, kept experiencing the power of the resurrection, the scent, the aroma, the aura of the resurrection. It works on us. It works on us. When we engage, when we show up, when we engage. That's the purpose. Third thing is the wine. You need wine. The wine is what the host provides or the hostess provides. And in the Bible, wine is really a powerful symbol in the Bible. Sometimes it's associated with drunkenness. About maybe 15, 20% of the time it's associated with drunkenness. And that's always uniformly, every time, bad in the Bible. So don't get drunk, okay? It's usually about 80, 85% of the time it's associated with joy. So Psalm 104 says, Psalm 104 verse 15 says that God gives wine to gladden the heart of humanity. To gladden our hearts. Amos, one of the prophets and, and other prophets, predicted a day when wine would flow freely. So Amos chapter 9, verse 13 says, excuse me, I got new glasses yesterday. I'm getting used to them. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. That was, that's not the only time that promise appears in the, in the Bible. There's going to be a gush of wine. There's going to be a gush of God's joy, a gush of God's provision. What is Jesus doing as he turns water into wine? John said it was a sign. It pointed to something. One of the things it's pointing to is, boom, that promise from the Old Testament happening right now. At this wedding, this little couple, nobody knows them, this little town, flyover country, the wine is starting to flow, Jesus is saying, in and through me. The wine is a symbol of lavish joy. And notice the quantity and quality of the wine Jesus provides. So I said there is between 120 to 180 gallons of wine he produces. That would be probably 
one or two gallons of wine for every man, woman, and child at this wedding. It's like a little excessive, Jesus, okay? We get the point. What's he promoting? Drink it all. Get drunk. No, he's promoting his own lavish grace. When I give wine, I pour it on, Jesus is saying in this sign. There's quantity, grace upon grace, it says about Jesus in John chapter 1. There's also quality. So this, this little master of ceremony guy, the guy that I said is totally oblivious, doesn't really know what's going on. He thinks he's in charge, but he, he, he's just oblivious. And Mary actually knows what's going on. Jesus knows what's going on, but he doesn't. He does say something really profound, though. He said, you have saved the best wine for last. What's the best wine? Well, the early church understood the best wine as Jesus. He's the best wine. People say, oh, Jesus is a nice guy. He's a good moral teacher. No, he's crazy if that's just what he is. Because he says, he is claiming all throughout the Gospel of John, I'm the best wine. I am the best wine in the universe. I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. I'm the true wine. I'm the joy that never fails. Yes, you will have sadness. Yes, you will have sorrow. Yes, you have suffering and terror, as Dallas Willard said. Those are real things. Your heart will be broken. In John chapter 11, Jesus will stand by the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and he'll openly sob at the death of his friend. This is not cheap. This is not shallow. But Jesus says, I can give you a source of wine even deeper and better than all of that. I remember one time when I was pastoring out on Long Island, I had done something nice for this young guy, and his parents had me over for dinner, and his dad was, had a lot of money, and he really wanted to impress me, so he just casually pointed out, this is a $100 bottle of wine you are drinking. And a guy like me that's used to two-buck chuck at Trader Joe's, I tasted it, and I go, I'm not sure what I'm tasting here, but I think I'm tasting what wine is supposed to taste like. <laughs> And I didn't have a headache when I got done, either. No sulfites, apparently. Jesus is saying, look, you think that thing that's going to give you ultimate joy, no matter what it is, you think that thing that's going to be ultimate joy, it's going to run out someday. Your life's going to run out. And it might leave you a really bad headache. That wine, that's just two-buck chuck. You want the $150 bottle? I got it. And I'm the only one. Now, let me just say, some of you were raised in a Christian experience. You've had a Christian experience. And it was either harsh and mean-spirited, or it was so dull and so insipid and so lackluster and so anemic, you get the point, that it bored you out of your mind. It bored you out of your church. And let me just say, you think you've really tasted the wine. And let me just ask, is it possible? You've never really had the wine. You've never really had the Jesus real stuff. Maybe you met Jesus, but it had so many distortions. Maybe you never met Jesus. Jesus said later in the Gospel of John, he said, I want my joy to be in you. I don't want it just to be a concept in your head. I want my joy to be in you. In John, at the end of this, this story, it says in verse 11, 
This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That word in the original language, believed in him, literally means believed into Jesus. It's a motion word. It's not stagnant. It's not just intellectual. It's moving into Jesus. They moved into him. Is there movement in your Christian life? Are, have you? Have you ever? Or are you now? Are you moving into Jesus? Let me give you two practical steps. First, you might want to tell Jesus at some point in this service, you might want to just whisper a prayer. I don't think I've ever really tasted the wine. Or if I did, I had the two buck chuck variety. I've just never tasted it. I want to move into you, Jesus. Or maybe you want to tell him at some point, I just, I've been trying another source of wine. And you want to just say, I want, I, want to, I want to choose you, Jesus, as my source of wine. That could be something you might want to do today. Second thing is, I want to challenge you and encourage you to move, if you're not already, and if you are already, to do it even deeper, move into weekly worship. Christians have a moo-moo. It's called Sunday morning worship service. It's our weekly resurrection feast. So if you're not doing it here, find another church or do it here. You know, as Anglicans, we don't have the best worship in the world. It's not like we're better than everybody else. But one of the things I appreciate about Anglican worship is that it really is a feast. I mean, we do something different. It's time set apart. So you see, like, like I, I wear this stuff, and you go, why is, why is that guy wearing that white robe, and why has he got the green on? Because if you're really at a festival, I mean, people set aside the time, and they dress differently. You know, people watch a Super Bowl, Kansas City Chief fans, they'll put on Kansas City Chief uniforms. We even got one guy here today with a Green Bay Packers shirt on today. <laughs> Sorry, dude. <laughs> I'm a Vikings fan, so I, I feel for you. We also lost to the 49ers. But anyway, we set aside time. We do life differently. Why? Because it's a festival. A healthy faith before God can be built cannot be built and maintained without heartfelt celebration of God's goodness to us, even in the midst of suffering and terror. Do whatever he tells you, Mary says. The humble host, the humble Lord of the feast, is inviting you to his table. Amen.